Hi, I'm Greg Lefebvre, and this is The Compulsive Storyteller, a series of short personal stories where we explore the idea that truth can be stranger than fiction. In this week's episode, entitled Divers and Dealers, I plan to spend an idyllic summer making art at my girlfriend's shack in a small lobster fishing village. One day, I make a joke at the expense of some local drug dealers, and suddenly, my idol is over. Divers and Dealers The names have been changed in this episode. I'm living with my girlfriend Molly in a shack that she rents in a large scrub oak and pine woods surrounded by other shacks inhabited mostly by Portuguese fishermen. Actually, they're not really fishermen, but lobster divers, the laziest and most itinerant type of fishermen. Our nearest neighbor, a diver nicknamed Gator, is at the moment using a skill saw and swearing loudly. Molly is at her restaurant job doing a double. I walk up to the screen door and call out, Gator, what's going on? I can see inside enough to know that he's cut a random series of square holes in the floor of his shack. I'm totally fucked, he says. That's what's going on. I ask, because? His response, between bursts of sawing, sounds panicky. Because I hid 60 grand in a plastic trash bag under the floor, and there were some mussel shells in the bag, too, and the skunk must have moved it somewhere. There are a number of skunks in the woods, and this one must have dragged the bag somewhere to get at the mussels. After another round of cursing, he continues out of breath, and my dealer's due to come by for his money any moment, and I can't find it. Then he cuts some more and calls out, thank God, and pulls up a green trash bag through the last hole and finds his cash inside. Many of my diver neighbors are smugglers and dealers as well. Most have small motorboats and under the cover of darkness pick up various packages containing coke or weed dropped by passing ships, planes, or fishing trawlers. Coke is a much better pickup because the profits are higher and the size of the packages is much smaller. So my guess is that the imminent arrival is a coke dealer from higher up in the food chain. I came to live in the shack here at Costa Heights because Molly, my girlfriend, has been renting here every summer for years. She's a fabulous woman, smart, tall, pretty, an artist, and she seems to be in love with both me and my artwork. She's invited me to join her for the spring and summer so I can work on my sculptures en plein air outside her shack in the woods. She's also a real athlete, a runner, biker, hiker, and an avid windsurfer. I've never had a jock girlfriend before, and I'm having great fun joining in her exploits. Plus, I'm in the best shape of my life. Molly is completely unlike any of our neighbors, but seems to be accepted by all the divers. When I first arrived here, we had a party to introduce me to them. I bought a selection of different exotic imported beers and other treats. All the men seemed uncomfortable at first, until someone left 
and returned with a couple cases of Narragansett beer and some supersized bags of Doritos. Then they all entertained Molly and themselves while I sat on the sidelines watching. The sculptures I'm working on are made by assembling various sticks and branches found in the woods and joining them together using a screw gun. Back in New York after the summer, I plan on casting these freestanding wooden constructions in bronze for a gallery exhibition. The first time two passing divers watched what I was doing, they walked away shaking their heads and laughing. To get some respect, I considered telling them how much I sell my pieces for back in New York, but then decided that this wasn't such a good idea. Costa Heights covers 100 acres of untouched woodland, except for the shacks, on top of a sandy hill near the harbor. It is the property of one Iris Costa, the ancient matriarch of the motley crew, including her two sons, who inhabit the woods. As the area surrounding the heights has undergone rapid gentrification, she's been offered tens of millions of dollars for her property, but she and her sons are perfectly happy with their lives in the woods, just as they are. At the apex of the hill sits a large, old, weathered, six-bedroom shingled house where she lives alone. She's a really tough old bird, and interestingly enough, she also repairs damaged birds brought to her by state park rangers and others. If you sit with her in her crowded, messy kitchen, it's disconcerting to have a bandaged-up, red-tailed hawk sitting next to a splinted heron, both staring at you. Molly loves Iris and thinks of her as a kind of witch. One day while Iris and I are chatting, she goes into her rusty refrigerator and brings out a large tuna tail, which has been sliced off so there's still a good deal of red meat inside. She holds it under one arm and with her other hand digs out a big tablespoon full of meat. I found this at the dump. It's iffy but delicious. As she pushes the spoon towards my face, the smell is so overwhelmingly putrid that I pull back. She gives me her typical wizened grin and says, Too much for you, hey, Lefebvre? You're such a pussy. Then she downs the iffy meat. Our shack has a curtain just inside the screen door so no one on the outside can see in. One day, two divers are actively negotiating a drug deal just outside the door and have no idea who's inside. To teach them a lesson, I call out like I'm on the phone. Hello, Drug Enforcement Agency? Their response is immediate and brutal. The screen door is kicked off its hinges as they charge in and throw me against the wall. Listen, asshole, you fucking little pissant artist. You ever open your mouth like that again? You're dead. Got it? Then they both give me a couple hard kicks while I'm down and leave. I'm amazed at my thoughtless stupidity trying to teach a lesson to two hardened drug dealers. And I don't want Molly to know what I've done, so I fix the screen door right away. When she arrives home, she notices the big welt on my forehead and says, Oh, baby, what happened to you? I took a tumble in the woods, I respond. She continues, I'm always telling you to slow down. Do you want me to kiss your boo-boo? I smile in acceptance, and she tenderly kisses my bump and then gives me a big hug, making me silently wince from the pain of my cracked ribs. After that, as I work on my sculptures in the woods, every so often I'm startled to see a diver standing off in the trees, arms folded, silently staring at me with a hateful look. A few days later, the first bad thing happens. I go out to my work table, and the stick sculpture that I've been working on 
has been busted into many small pieces that are left in a little pile in the middle of my table. I don't mention this to Molly either, but now I'm deeply worried. There is one funny interlude before the next bad thing happens. Molly waitresses at a fancy seaside restaurant on the harbor, and one night she borrows some of my music tapes to play in the restaurant. Years before, I'd been in therapy and kept having great insights in my sessions, which I would then promptly forget. My therapist suggested that I record our talks, which I did, but then I never ever bothered to listen to them. After terminating therapy, I taped music over most of my sessions. When Molly got home from her shift, she said, you won't believe what happened in the restaurant tonight. She seemed both amused and horrified. So I was in the middle of taking an order from a table of 10 when your music ended and your therapy session began. When I sprinted to the bar, the bartender wouldn't let me get to the tape deck to turn it off. Everyone on the staff got a big kick out of it. So what was I saying, I asked with a big smile. I have no idea. I was so horrified I really didn't listen. Then she hands me back all my music tapes, continuing, thanks so much, but no thanks. The next bad thing to happen is that both the tires of my trail bike are slashed. When Molly and I get ready to go out on our bikes for a ride, I don't tell her my tire has been slashed, but explain that I have a flat tire and borrow Gator's bike. A few days later, someone writes something on the windshield of my pickup which I can't read because the wet red paint has run down everywhere. I clean it off the best I can and then cover the front of my truck with a tarp for Molly's benefit, making it look like I've been working on the engine. It seems that the divers are just going to keep at it until I quit and head back to New York. The next incident is impossible to keep from Molly. We're going out windsurfing one evening and plan to catch the sunset. When we pull out our windsurfers from under the shack, mine has been broken in two. Damn, she says. What would make somebody do something like this? And why? I respond, I know why, and tell her the whole story of my drug enforcement agency stunt. Jesus, Greg, these are our neighbors. Why would you do something so provocative and stupid? Ah, uh, because sometimes my big mouth gets ahead of my brain, I respond. Okay, she says, well, I'll talk to Iris's son and some of the other divers and see what I can work out. When Molly returns from making her rounds, she says, they all, to the man, just don't like you or trust you, and Iris's son says he can't guarantee your safety. I've never seen him this angry, and I'm really worried about what might happen to you. She gives me a hug and a kiss and continues, so I'm sorry, baby, but I really think you should go home for your own safety, and I'll see you in September. It's a sad day when I leave Costa Heights. With all my stuff and a big bundle of sticks and branches from the surrounding woods in the back of my truck, Molly kisses me goodbye and seems just as upset as I am. Back in New York, I miss everything about her terribly. I ride my bike and jog, but it's not the same without her. The weeks pass, and it takes her longer and longer to return my call. When she finally comes home at the end of September, we go out to her favorite restaurant to celebrate our reunion. But then over dinner, she announces that she wants to call it quits. I'm overwhelmed, 
and tear up at the table, which embarrasses her. Then she really turns on me. I'm sorry, Greg, but I realize that like everybody else in Costa Heights, I stopped trusting you too. She stands up, gives me a hurried hug, and leaves before dessert. It's amazing that a single sentence, uttered in a moment of thoughtlessness, has changed the course of my life. Hello, Drug Enforcement Agency? Just four words, and everything is different. Who knows where I would be today if I just restrained myself? Instead, I lost my summer studio and my life of fun and sports in the woods. I lost the woman I loved, and I lost my own self-respect. I'm not sure what the lesson to be learned here is. Possibly beware of the company you keep, or maybe never miss an opportunity to keep your mouth shut is more apt. If only life were like Photoshop and you could keep pressing undo, undo, undo until you get back to the mistake you made and then start with a clean slate. If only. Compulsive Storyteller is written and narrated by me, Greg Lefebvre, and co-produced with Peter Kokoma, who also composed this week's music and made our theme song. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love your help sharing the show. Please subscribe to The Compulsive Storyteller for free on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you listen, and it would be great if you could leave a review. Follow the show on Instagram, at The Compulsive Storyteller, and check out our website for more info at thecompulsivestoryteller.com. Thanks for listening, and if you didn't like this one, the next one will be another story. <laughs>